This is the Blood Red podcast from the Liverpool Echo, giving you the inside track on all the big talking points from Anfield. Hello, welcome to another Liverpool.com podcast. I'm Dan Morgan. I'm joined by Liverpool.com's Mark Wakefield and Oliver Connolly. Gents, I hope you're both well. Uh, we've got a lot to get through and we've got um, quite a few things to chat about. Varied sort of chat this week for you. And what is the last Liverpool.com podcast of the year of 2020? What an eventful year it has been. Um, we're going to do a bit of Tottenham, of course, because we're all really high after that still. We're going to have a little chat about fixtures. And we'll also have a chat about transfers moving into January. Um, we'll obviously be back in the new year and we'll be able to pick up on anything that does happen in Liverpool circles around transfers. However, we'll just do a little bit of a projection and and give some of our own sort of hopes and dreams about what Liverpool might do in the window. But first, we'll start with Spurs, Ollie. And there's, there's a win that you said this morning in relation to the title race constitutes as Liverpool and title winning form um, and I think you're right the more I've thought about it it's it's one where it feels very much like this season it's going to come down to winning the games that you need to win and beating those around you and Liverpool they left it late but they ensured they did that last night Yeah I think we've become accustomed to kind of the Klopp Guardiola era of the Premier League now where 100 points becomes the target and, and you have to hit that benchmark to even really be in the thing I think because of the nature of this season, you just track how many teams have even gone five matches unbeaten this year. It's not many. As of now, it's only Liverpool and United. So once you start getting to six, seven, eight games unbeaten, though it sounds like small numbers based on what we've become accustomed to, when you get to the end of the season, you reflect how many teams strung together five matches unbeaten. It won't be many. Mm-hmm. Um, so the old Ferguson formula is always win your home games, pick up points away from home, try not to lose, and then put everything into prioritising beating your title rivals. And if you look at where Liverpool are at the moment and beating Leicester, winning at Stamford Bridge, taking a draw at the Etihad, beating Spurs, if you just repeat those and flip it for, obviously, some of them will be away and then there'll be some more at home, playing City at home, for instance, that's probably it. That is honestly job done. And in the moment, it feels really frustrating when, because everything now is a 24-hour news cycle and the way we all lived and followed the sport now is just different to how it was when it really was week to week back in the day. But yeah. when you have a frustrating result away at Brighton because of VAR, or you have a frustrating result away at Fulham because of uh, just a dodgy performance from the team and they were a bit uh, sleepwalking through that match, they're frustrating, but that's fine. That is title-winning form. Picking up those annoying draws, but then beating title challenges directly head-to-head. That's how you squeeze over the line. It'll probably be 90-92 points. United won some titles with 80 points, 82 points. I think they won three titles of 82 points. I think 90-92 points, if that's your benchmark, and you beat City, take four points off them, take four points off Chelsea, that, to me, that's the job. That's it. It's done. Yeah, I was fascinated by Robertson last night, Mark, post-match. You know, we said... Quite a few things that were interesting. He firstly talked about sort of pinning Spurs fullbacks, even at Liverpool fullback level, which I thought was interesting in terms of sort of identifying how Spurs get out and get the balls into Kane and Son. But when he talked about the bigger picture, he spoke about how it means nothing unless Liverpool sort of, for want of a better phrase, put the burners on now and and start to make a bit of ground between them and the rest. And I think I think he was sort of alluding to the Fulham game in that. I think it's getting to the point now with this team, despite the injuries and, and despite the, the sort of miraculous job done by all involved, that they won't want any more sort of what they what they deem themselves as slip-ups in games that they're expected to win. 
Yeah, you're absolutely right. I mean, there's comments made by Robson. I mean, absolutely spot on. I mean, you can see why he's captain of his national team. He just speaks with so much like authority and just is a leader the way he, you know, he commands himself on and off the pitch. But yeah, you're absolutely right. Just going forward with the, um, you know, pin, like pinning Spurs back, you know, it was an absolute classic Mourinho uh, game, if you like. Um, we were obviously intrigued by how they were set, he would set his team up, but it pretty much just was just counter-attacking football pretty much, you know, alluded to, you know, they had a couple of chances. There's been a lot of debate about who was the better team, if you like. I mean, on social media, people, players have had fun with it, but, you know, it was obvious which team was, you know, setting the agenda, if you like, on trying to win the game and Spurs were basically just reacting to the way they were poor playing pretty much. And, you know, it's a classic, you know, title winning performance. Not Maybe that's a bit of going a bit far, you know, still, what, 25 league games to go is a long way to go still in the title race but you know it was just the kind of performance where you know it seems to be like the games like i think we've mentioned there you know leicester at home wolves at home chelsea away you know spurs now at home the big games liverpool are turning up in and that's what matters um you know losing to fulham there away you know you know games like that are going to happen you know man city have lost uh drew with west brom um the other day so these results are going to happen they're going to keep on happening um you could say it is a freak season, but you know, when you actually think about it, this is probably more of a regular season that we're probably accustomed to seeing. You know, when United are at their pomp, you know, you're not going to win every game. The last couple of seasons are the freak seasons where Liverpool have won every game pretty much by the odd one. They're the freak seasons. This one's a bit more back to normality, if you like. You know, point to the lack of fans having an impact, but when you actually think about it, it is much more normal, if for lack of a better term, in terms of what we've. We used to before that so yeah in terms of putting the burners on you now what made for, uh, for example last season you know the man city win which was at the time this pretty much a similar time of the season you know what made that win so big was they didn't stop there they kicked on they went on and won however many games on the spin after that and they've got to do the same again if they want to win the title again i think i mean you say it's not you're right to say it's not a sort of a game which will define the title in in december but you know, you, you imagine if Spurs would have won that game last night, everyone would be saying today how much that that would that was a game that, that sets them as sort of title favourites, if you like. You know, watch Spurs go now. There'd be a lot of talk of Spurs' title credentials after last night if they'd have won. And it would have been a big Mourinho thing. It would have been Mourinho breaking the Anfield record. It would have been all about Mourinho in some form. And and, and I think that plays out full-time. And... and, and that being fascinated, Ollie, by some of the some of the reaction, not just by him, but just in general. I, I think sort of the praise I've seen today for Mourinho going for Liverpool. Yeah, he went for Liverpool, which was a, a Liverpool side with two teenagers in, one of which was making his Premier League debut at centre half. I mean, if he didn't go for Liverpool, be, <laughs> if I was a Spurs fan, I'd be asking the question why, to be honest. And and I think Mark's right. I think in the sense that you know, I think these are the games where. Eventually, it does set you apart. You know, you'll have games where Tottenham might look back at the end of the season if they are to stay the distance and say, well, if only we didn't settle for that 0-0 at Chelsea. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, we went for Liverpool, but if only we'd have sort of gone up a gear when we needed to against Chelsea and, and not played out for a 0-0. And I think time and again, you see with this Liverpool side, when it needs to assert itself, it does. And it does it in the big games. 
Yeah, I'm going to make a second old-timey reference for you here. I said okay. to you guys this morning, it reminded me of the peak Arsenal, Arsene Wenger teams. There was always like, there was obviously United back and forth, and you had this with Mourinho's early Chelsea teams too. Someone would come for the crown, and we would have a big build-up heading into usually Super Sunday. You know, they would have all the top six would play each other on the same weekend at that time. Big build-up, this is it, here we go for the title, and they would just quash someone in the first 25 minutes and tell them, sit down. Watch yeah. how fast we can move the ball. And you think you can reach our title level. We have an extra gear. That's the championship gear. And that first 25, 30 minutes against Spurs, I thought Spurs were excellent. I thought they were compact, condensed. It was a perfect plan. That was Mourinho's frustration. Good. It yeah. was, I can't believe I got this so right. And you guys yeah. let me down. Stephen yeah, Bergman yeah. put it in the bottom corner. and You carried me off the pitch. I did it. You know, that was yeah. his frustration. And Liverpool, those first 25 minutes, if you want to condense it to a small block and be active and press and be really intelligent, cool. Watch how fast we can move this ball. Watch Curtis and Genie switch positions. Watch how we can craft space. Watch Bobby Firmino drop to pick the ball up between the two centre-backs because we do not care because we have the swagger and confidence of champions. And that, to me, was what? was what separated them. And that is the kind of trigger game, sparkle game, whatever you need. And then just in terms of pure point total, it's just margin of error. You will mm. slip up against Sheffield United away. You'll have a 1-1 there. You'll go to West Ham and they might score in the 90th minute off a of ricochet. You might get a dodgy VAR call. But winning the head-to-head matchup just gives you such a degree of margin of error that you wouldn't ordinarily have. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Liverpool's intensity over the 90 minutes is still, for me, mark what sets them apart from everyone else. You know, There was a lot of talk about... The game, you know, the perception of the game last night being a fantastic game where both sides were, were sort of the cause of, of such a great encounter. And while I agree with Ollie, I thought Spurs were fantastic in the setup. I thought they were incredibly potent in the way in which they, they waited for the chance to counter attack. Liverpool were the side who set that tempo last night. Liverpool were the side who decided if you're going to match us, you play in this gear. And it was, it was again, I think it's a really good sort of reference points Wenger's Arsenal at the peak where you would go there and believe that you were on a level playing field with them for for 10 minutes and then they would just find a way to step it up and it was then a war of attrition for you for 90 and that's the thing Mourinho will never admit for me is that he'll never admit that going to this Liverpool side is a war like nothing you've ever prepared for in your life because that's how he bases every team he's ever had that's how every great manager bases every team they've ever had they set themselves up as we are the most hard working. We will not be beaten on X, Y, or Z. And none of them can admit it. But this Liverpool team will always beat that bar. It always will under Klopp. And it always has. And that's the thing that is, is in, in many ways got them to where they are. But as well as that, you get to see, I think, last night, just how technically brilliant they are. They retain the ball when they need to. The brave in possession, the vertical when they need to be vertical. And like I said before, they've got two teenagers in the side who are, for me, learning. When we talk about things back down the years and back through the years of the Liverpool way, for me, they are the quintessential example of the Liverpool way in a modern day. I always thought the Liverpool way was, was something tangible. I always thought it was something that you could actually grab and feel and see. It's not. It's just a culture. It's a culture that means you can develop two players like that or players of their ilk and they can come into this setup that helps each and every player that it, that it brings in. And I believe now, I believe now we're sort of still too hung up on transfers in terms of a player's ability. I think we need to just trust if we've seen something in someone, then the culture that they come into will mould them and develop them 
to what we believe they need they need to be. And I think I think Jones and Williams were pivotal to that last night. You're absolutely right. I mean, <clears throat> but I mean, Curtis Jones. I mean, I've lost count how many times. I mean, I'm absolutely astounded by how how good he is, how composed he is, how much he just seamlessly just fits into this Liverpool team with just no. You think a struggling 19 year old in the middle of the park against arguably the best side that <clears throat> that the uh, they played against this season? You think he would be out of his depth? Absolutely not. He was man of the match and deservedly so. You know. He would just he'd control the middle of the park, him and him, Henson and Wijnaldum. They just, I think Ollie's alluded to it as well in the piece as well. Off the ball as well as on it, it's absolutely fantastic. His defensive awareness, his tactical positioning is absolutely astounding. And then Reese Williams, um, you know, shoving him in. I mean, if he hadn't played in the Champions League, I doubt it would have probably got a game. Um, it probably would have gone with Nat Phillips. Personally, before the game, I was surprised he went with Williams over Phillips if Matic wasn't fit, but. He did prove me wrong, really, but he did really well. And I think you're right, you know. It's not so much about, you know, the individuals. I mean, that's the thing that Klopp set is a different to other managers. Most managers think, how can I look to the transfer market to fix this problem? You know, Mourinho's one a classic one for it. Get me this player to fix this problem. He had it United, he wanted a centre back, he didn't get one. And he often alluded to that as part of the problems that he had there. With Klopp, it's like, right, what how can I solve this problem with what I've got? And if I get a transfer, then great. If not, then I'll work with these young boys that I've got, get them to the best players that they can possibly be. And, you know, that's much more rewarding for him than spending 50 million on a centre-back or 50 million on a striker <clears> and then saying, right, well, there you go. It's much more rewarding for him. And I think he would much rather see, you know, I mean, I think you've said, if Curtis Jones was at, like, say, for example, Ajax or Porto or any, like, fringe club in Europe, you know, he would be talking about as one of the best talents in Europe and probably going for like what you know Frankie Dion went however much to Barcelona for that and you know I'm it's a bit early to talk about that for Williams but that's to, the culture that Liverpool are buying into now that they're bringing these players in not so much just you know the the individual capability that they have but just the system the way the other players work the way that the culture around the club is much more important than any individual will ever be and you know it obviously stems from Klopp and you know, the recruitment team the uh, the staff at um, at Kirby you now bringing the youngsters through. The environment around there is just so vital, and uh, we're actually seeing the rewards of that now with the young boys coming through. If I can just say on Jones, I think the thing with him that's interesting is I agree with you, Dan. I think that that was another win for culture last night, yeah. and I do think that the way they brought the lads through, I think Reese Williams, Nat Phillips is win for culture. I do think Jones is a culture breaker in in certain respects. I'm just in awe of him. I mean, every time he plays. I write a 3,000 word piece now because I just, <laughs> it's just unreal what we're seeing from this young lad. And I think the, what I mean by culture breaker is when you have a culture win or a win for culture, it's typically like Reese Williams, drop a young lad in. And because we prepared him, because he's been in the group of excellence and he's worked with these lads and we have a strong group of senior players and we have a clear ideology, it's easy for him to slot in. He's, he's better safeguarded, he's better protected. And so maybe he makes mistakes, but he doesn't drop our floor. Right, it's like it's how close can we get to our normal level with him? Curtis Jones is pushing it up. You know, it's not yeah. about just like trying to protect him and like, okay, can you raise his game to to our normal level? 
he's like advancing things in the midfield. What is happening between him and Henderson and Wijnaldum in that morphing triangle they've got the Joel's written so brilliantly about on the site where it's two and one, then it's one and two. And just the, the innate understanding between the three of them, it is complete look and wink-wink chemistry. It is not talking or anything like that. They just know where to be around each other. To the point where I'm watching like, Obviously, Thiago's going to play, but why would you want to disrupt this trio? It, it, the chemistry is amazing. He is pushing them to a different level, which I didn't think was possible. Also, Firmino, I put in that. Do you mm. think about how hard it is to drop any player in with Firmino in and around his spaces? He, he just he cannot gel with them. Yeah. You've tried Shaq there, you've tried Minamino there, and you've tried to play them with him. Him and Curtis have quietly got a really, really good understanding in terms of use of space. I completely agree with you. I think... I think a problem with it is, Ollie. I think we're so used to, especially in that area of the pitch, expecting a Gerrard. Mm-hmm. We're so used to expecting, you know, a lung-busting, sort of dynamic, box-to-box, free-flowing, tackling sort of machine who, who just absolutely runs himself into the ground for 90 minutes at that youth level coming up. That's what we want to see. We want to see... We want to see that endeavour. We want to see that work. He's cultured in the sense that he's he's so European in, in the way in which he decides where he engages on the pitch. And where he engages and where he decides to engage is where he says, I've made this space available. I don't have to run back and forth, box to box, to try and create spaces or to try and show you how good a player I am. Here I am, I'm creating space not only for myself, but for other people. And like I say, I think... I think Firmino, there's probably a piece we're going to write on this at some point now that I've said it, but I think Firmino's quietly been a really big beneficiary of Jones running the side. So I think that's that's a massive compliment because that's two players there who, I mean, if, you, if you're sort of getting compared to being on a level of understanding with Roberto Firmino, then you're not doing much wrong, put it that way. Um, no, you're still getting football genius levels at that point, which I know sounds hyperbolic, but all you have to do is go and watch the movement off the ball. The movement yeah. off the ball, as Mark reference, is astounding. Yeah. The reference point I used with you guys earlier was Cesc Fabregas. I think Jones has yeah. more of a, a taller, uh, probably leaner than early Cesc Fabregas, honestly. Uh, Fabregas-type vibe to him. The, the, the drifting, the gliding on the ball, but the understanding of space and where to be in Cesc just didn't play as good a team as, as he advanced on as, as Kurtz did and now. But that innate understanding of where to be as you're saying in reference to Henderson and Firmino as kind of the two pivot points that it all orbits around is that's not what you normally see it's normally all right all right lad we've got you you just kind of go up there be a bit creative and we'll we'll hold this there's none of that there's a complete um there's an authority to his game and there's an understanding from everyone else that oh he's already on our level don't worry about him which is unusual and it's and it's almost I get I get the Cesc comparison in this it's sort of head on a pivot Mm -hmm type of, of knowing where everything is at one time. I think they've done really well. We'll, we'll move on from Curtis now because this is very quickly becoming the Curtis Jones podcast every week. Um, but I think they've done really well at sort of get, getting the, the not, not the childish nature, but, but the sort of you know raw nature of his game out of him so quickly. And make the Gerrard comparison again. Gerrard was constantly looking to try and play football like a street footballer. He wants to get his head up, ping a ball 40 yards. He wanted to, to put his foot through everything. As soon as he got a sniff at goal, he was, he was, that was it, it was gone. And Curtis was quietly the same from his early sort of viewings that we had of him. You know, he was constantly looking for a shot where there was times you were thinking, you need to lay it, you need to go one more. They've really got him comfortable in his own skin, is the other thing I'd say, which is a massive bonus. The Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.
we will move on to fixtures and I think Saturday is one that even before yesterday Ollie I had in mind as being tricky um, I wonder whether firstly I don't think there'll be many changes for Palace but I also wonder whether it's a case of this manager now just saying to his squad barring that they're all fit and he's getting the okay from the relevant departments just give me one more mm-hmm. you give me one more and then we've got eight days to West Brom you give me one more and I will guarantee you that I get some rest into you. Yeah, I mean, I hope so. Crystal Palace always terrifies me. Everyone has that game where no matter the record, just you wake up and you're like, no, I'm not fancying it today. <laughs> and no matter, it might be Chris Stamble, I have no idea, but it's something about that away terrifies me. Early kickoff there doubly terrifies me. So I, I do think for you, it is a kind of we go again, one final push. Let's get, let's get through this end of December. And once you get to West Brom, Newcastle back to back, yeah, happy days and we can kind of game plan it out. I think the, the thing with the rest, that it's certainly important for, I think, the front six, as we now understand them to be with no Jota and with Jones just being solidified. I think at the back, if Matip can't play at this point, you're kind of like, well, Matip can't play. You know, yeah. it would ordinarily be a real concern, whereas as now, whichever one you want to throw out there, they both have their deficiencies. They're both younger lads, but I, it doesn't terrify me any longer to have those one of those two lads chucked out there with the first team. No, absolutely. And I think... I think it's two massive games, Mark, is what I'd say. In, in, in reference to Fulham again, in that, you know, and reference to Robertson's quote, I suppose, in that Liverpool need to just get six points on the board. And, and it, will be, it will be given that Liverpool should take six points. Um, we can talk all day about injuries and stuff like that, but it's not a given in any Premier League game. We've seen it with West Bromwich City. We've seen it with Fulham hosting Liverpool. You know, Liverpool will have to find a way to fight for the points and Saturday at half 12 is not an ideal scenario or setting for that. No, absolutely not. I mean, you know, Crystal Palace away, I think Ollie alluded to there, is personally one of my least favourite games of the season. I, it's, people always look at the calendar when the fixtures come out and I personally look at Crystal Palace away because the history that it has, it still haunts me to this day. Um, <clears throat> but personally, if you were to tell me when... Liverpool would play Palace away. Early kickoff is not the end of the world, but when you factor in that they played Wednesday night and then they've got to travel all the way down there, then that that becomes a problem on top of the injury situation as well. Um, but you know it's going to be an absolute fight to try and get anything from Palace. You know, you saw them against West Ham. You know they've got a lot of fight with them, especially on the road. But you know there's no Christian Benteke. He got um, got a second yellow card, so he's suspended for the game. But you know. They've still got a lot of quality players there. Wolf is a heart absolutely terrifies me. He's a wonderful player. And, you know, he does like to raise the game when he plays against the big boys. So that's certainly going to be a tough game. But then, like you say, you know, there's going to be eight games rest, eight days rest before they, um, they play, um, I think it's West Brom or New- West Brom Newcastle, those two games. You know, you know, if they can get nine points out of those, you know, they're going to set themselves up really, really well going into the new year. But, I say it's much easier said than done. You know, if we looked at Fulham and thought that was three points assured and it was anything but, you know, they were probably lucky to get a draw in the end. So, you know, but you know, just with the the way these games are coming thick and fast, you know, the way other teams are dropping points as well, it's not as if like, you know, Liverpool are the only team that are dropping let's, let's not forget they are three points clear at the top of the table and if result if they barring VAR, they probably would have four further points if you factor in the Brighton and the uh, the Everton situations where they're so and when you factor in the injuries, it just shows you how much this Liverpool team, if has things gone the way they should have done, which they, in fairness to us, went, everything went our way last season, they would be walking this league, there's no doubt about it. But 
know, it is much up on a much more level playing field. And over the Christmas period, over the New Year, and then once you get to like say May United um, in mid January, once you've got the FA Cup out of the way, you know that's when it'll really start to take shape how the table will look because you know teams are going to drop points. I dare say Liverpool probably one of the teams to drop points as as well. You've got Southampton, I think, on um, 2nd of January. That's not going to be easy either. They're looking really, really strong as well. So there's plenty of games uh, to come up really uh, up soon. They're all tough ones, no matter who you play against. It could be, West, like I say, West Brom game, Man City. Again, you've got Sam Aldice there. Now that uh, has a little bit of spice to it as well because we know how he likes to basically frustrate opposition teams. So he's done it before with Everton as well when he came to Anfield and frustrated them. So it's certainly going to be tough, but... Yeah, it's vital that you know this Liverpool team, whichever eleven gets out, it doesn't matter which eleven goes out there, whichever one does, up, they've got to be up to the fight. I'm just looking now, Ali. I do, I do wonder whether, in many ways, all roads lead to United on the 17th of January, and and I'm not disrespecting or disregarding any of the fixes that come before that, apart from Villa in the FA Cup, which Barry Lutus will manage and Leighton Clarkson will captain. Um, but you might get a chance in that one. <laughs> hey, listen, might be in a ballot to play in that one. <laughs> it's January, mate. It's pre, it's post Christmas. I've got no chance. Uh, give me a shout in July when I'm at my peak. Um, but genuinely, I think that I think that there's every chance, firstly, that once he's past Southampton, he sends them away. Mm-hmm. I think he decides everyone's getting their own winter break, and and genuinely, the, the under 18s play Villa. That's that's how I see it in terms of the game that happened last season. That fixture could repeat itself. But secondly, I wonder if, with that in mind, he can sort of look at United and say, OK, this is the game that the cavalry comes back a little bit. And if he can sort of put a circle around the likes of Shaq, Milner, Thiago, Jota, and say, yeah, we might get them back earlier, but if I'm writing the 4th of January after the 17th, let's just put a programme into them now that gets them ready for that United game. And then we move on from there because the rest of that month is not easy in itself. You've got United on the 17th, you've got Burnley on the 21st, you've got Tottenham again on the 28th and West Ham on the 31st. And then we move back into Champions League and everything else. I wonder whether that's the day that we see sort of Liverpool bring the troops back a little bit. I think that would be the smart long-term plan and then it's just depending on if something you know goes a bit skew if I, I heard an audible wince down when Sam Allardyce's name was mentioned that West Brom game I'm not loving that West Brom game I don't know why it's just the Allardyce factor I think um, I'm really not loving it I, I guess the, the, the option you would have as the manager with your medical staff I do think there's a there's a there's a thing certainly with Thiago I can envisage a world in which they've said look this this thing with Vini keeps happening it's blowing up we can't control it whatever you just take off till January 1st and we'll reassess. You know, we'll get through this FA Cup weekend. Don't worry about it. We treat you as a new signing in January. Let's not press it. I can certainly see that being a conversation. The other way you could spin it is let's try and get these guys back so we can steal a break for our yeah. frontline guys in these couple of weeks we're talking about. And then they can kind of go again and, and be reset come that United game. So I think they could play it a couple of ways there. And I'd be interested to know. I think both can work. I, I My preference would be for the, the one you said, where you kind of just push everyone out, say, let's knuckle down, get through these weeks. You all get a big break. And then we bring these lads in like three new signings, plus probably a new signing. And then yeah. we just go ahead from January. And that's when we really put our foot to the floor and treat it like any normal season then, because the fixture list isn't that too dissimilar to a regular season. At that point, they've been through it before. And, and you should, by that point, have had 
that the medical staff and the coaching staff should have had enough bandwidth, enough time to kind of comprehend what this season looks like in terms of rest and recovery, that they should have a good plan in place by that, that post that FA Cup weekend. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I want to have a little chat about transfers, Mark, and sort of moving into that January window. Like Holly says, Liverpool might well welcome a new signing when it opens or throughout the month. I We had a chat this morning and I made the point that my priority wouldn't actually be a centre-back, it would be a centre-midfielder. Um, I think Ollie made a point earlier, or yourself did, about sort of how getting to, to the point where you're putting a Reese Williams or even a Nat Phillips in for certain games is now not the end of the world because we've seen what it looks like and we know it can work. Whereas before, it was complete panic stations. I'm more more concerned, if you like, around what happens in centre midfield at this club in the summer if we lose Gini Wijnaldum, if Thiago's injury problems don't go away. And I don't think they can ever be fully ruled out because he, he had problems before this. If James Milner's a year older, if Jordan Henderson's a year older, if Naby Keita remains as sort of unreliable as he is, and you sort of get where I'm going with this, Ox is another one. I think if they're looking at it, because there's such a premium on centre-backs around the world, I wonder whether the priority, like I say, is we get a centre midfielder in, we move for being your back, we commit to him at centre-back for how long that takes. But we cover that area as a priority rather than centre-half. Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting one. I mean, you raised the point and obviously it's something that when you first hear the idea of Liverpool not signing a centre-back given the situation they've got, it does make you raise your eyebrows, I think. But when you actually sit and think about it, it does make a lot more sense. I mean, you know, I think you're right. Fabinho basically is a centre-back now. That's pretty much it now. Until Gomez and Van Dijk are, are back, which, you know, might not even be for the rest of this season. Fabinho might be basically centre-back <clears throat> until May. Um, it's an interesting one because I certainly agree that the midfield certainly does need to be looked at. I think a lot of it depends on what happens with Wijnaldum. You know, Klopp clearly wants to keep him. He's made that publicly clear. He wants to see Wijnaldum extend his deal. You can have your own opinions of whether you think he should stay or not, but whatever happens, that has to be sorted out and fast because whether he stays or not is going to impact on whether they sign him or attempt to sign a midfielder in January. If he if he stays, then great, get another year or two out of him and then start planning, maybe in looking into the summer, maybe getting somebody in. But if he's not, then what you said, they really have to start thinking about do we get somebody in? You know, Cater's fitness record isn't great. Ox, Ox's fitness record isn't great. Thiago has problems at Bayern and you know, we've hardly seen him here. Fabinho is basically going to be a centre-back for the foreseeable. And then Henderson, like you say, and Milner are going to be years old, a year older. So it's certainly going to be an interesting one. But like you said, look, people will know that Liverpool are going to be after these type of players now. And it's similar with Man United with every deal they do. There's going to be a premium on whoever they go for, especially if it's from a Premier League club, which is what we've been led to believe that Liverpool would want if they signed centre-back. You'd like to think it would be something similar if it was a midfielder too with Premier League experience but still young and has the ability to develop. So they aren't going to come cheap. And, you know, it depends on what budget they do have in January. Notoriously, at underclock, Liverpool don't tend to do much business in January. But when they do, it's a needs more sort of thing. And, you know, the big one I can think of is um, Van Dijk. They needed a centre-back. They needed a leader and they got one. Now it's just a case of, how desperate are they to get somebody in that mould? Me personally, I think they should still sign a centre-back. I think as good as Reese Williams has been, I don't think you can rely on him for the bulk of the season, especially when if you factor in Champions League, how you know, they've got um, 
you know, Leipzig in the last 16. And then if they get through that, they're going to have a lot of tough games after that as well. And then if the title race goes down to the wire, you're going to need your, your first first lineup for pretty much every game, especially when you play the big boys. So it's an interesting one what they do, but like I say, a lot of it will depend on the players that they've got and whether they're going to stay or not, especially Warren Alden. It's interesting how all of this fits the Liverpool model, Ollie. You know, they, they, they don't get held over a battle for anyone. And not only that, they will have had their own plans in place. So, you know, I would... I would budget a guess on saying that I don't think signing a first-choice centre-back was a, was a key priority prior to the injuries this season. If if they've got Joel Matip on a new deal, if Virgil van Dijk is about to sign a new deal by all accounts, and if Joe Gomez is still what can be classed as a young player, then yeah, there might have been a priority for a fourth-choice centre-back that they can blossom into something better. But I don't think sort of... Breaking the bank for a, for an up of Meccano, for example, was was in their list of priorities. I do think the midfield issue was one they'd have probably looked to sort prior to a defensive one, and you just wonder how much of that they're willing to sort of change or move with, given the circumstance. Yeah, I think the the top line centre back one is interesting. I've read a lot of the online commentary I've done, and they all say you got to sign a young player. Right, young player who can grow into be a first teamer who can maybe challenge Joe Gomez in the future and maybe just maybe become the replacement for Van Dyke 2023 beyond. It's like, well, great, no duh, that'd be wonderful. Where is this unicorn that's out there? <laughs> you've got up Meccano, you've got Canate, maybe they're off the board now. There's no way Leipzig is selling them to then have them beat them in the Champions yeah. League. That makes no financial sense. You'd say, okay, let's talk in the summer. Yeah. Um, I think I think if they were going to do a panic signing, one of these cheap ones, I think it would be done. Minamino was done really early and announced. They wanted to try and get him ahead of schedule. Yeah. Van Dijk was done early. It was the 26th of December, was it? 25th? It was It was right on Christmas, basically. Done. He's wearing red, and he'll actually register on the 1st of January. So I think if they were going to do one of them where it was like, we're throwing 10 million at some Olympiacas guy, I think it would basically be done. Um, by yeah. now, and we would probably know about it from some kind of league. The other one I think is a possibility is to thread the needle and to get someone who can play both positions. And that may, may be where the, most of the Ben White discussion is because Leeds have tried him in more of a halfback role where he's dropping into a three rather than starting in a three. Um, so I could see maybe that where they'd say, well, maybe Ben White for us can maybe do some of that Fabinho stuff where he, he could play centre-back and then maybe we could push him into uh, a screening midfield option if we want to. So I think that if we're going to see something in January that was projecting long-term, I think they would try, and Michael Edwards being a warlock, probably has a list of 50,000 players who could do this, who could fit both roles. I think that's what they'd, they'd look at someone who could either do right-back and centre-back or midfield and then also centre-back. I, I cannot foresee a situation where they say we suddenly found 40 million quid on the sofa although they did just get the new being deal sorted in uh in the gulf nations and north africa so that's it's a tidy chunk of change maybe fsg does say look we'll make it back in prize money sponsor bonuses new sponsorship because we're back-to-back title winners let's go do it now if we can with a 40 million pound war kitty but i just don't see that being the case i think you're more likely to see a versatile option who can plug multiple holes i mean it's Unlikely, Ollie, but do you see anyone leaving in the window? Oh, well, I've written a piece overnight. I, I would personally put Origi on the table, and I would do kind of like they did with the left-back situation, which is we have X pot of money. I think it was 9, 12 million quid. Who wants it? Our four targets are Jamal Lewis, Costas Chimikas, down the line. Offers open to all of you. First come, first serve. You know, they, Norwich haggled over it. They said, fine, Olympiagos accepted it. 
we're cool. We have our grade system. We think these guys are on the same level. They mm. shop for profiles of players. You know, they will shop for a player. Thiago is a, like a profile breaker. But other under the line, I think it's profile shopping. So if they say we want a fourth choice centre-back who fits these roles, I would put Origi on the table and say we might lose some of the transfer money we, we thought we might get. It could even be two loan deals where you just do a six-month loan back and forth. I would say who fancies Divock Origi on loan or permanently and let's use him as the emphasis for a kind of similar profile of Origi-ish player at centre-back. Your average to blah Premier League player but at centre-back rather than strike. And that wage budget and that squad allocation we have on Origi, which at this point is essentially useless. He's been gazumped by mm. three, four players just in terms of being the stylistic wild card. It's just not his role at the club anymore. And let's allocate those resources to the centre-back spot at least for you know, six, 12, 18 months. Mark, how about you? I say it's a tough one. I mean, I mean, I can't see anybody leaving. I mean, unless like a ridiculous offer comes in for one of the fringe players. I mean, when you Shakiri was close to leaving but for one reason or another it didn't happen it didn't get over the line could i see him leaving possibly if another club wants to come in for their valuation but given the current circumstances obviously the pandemic and you know, financial situation for most clubs across europe i just can't see that happening like i say with Origi, if they can use Origi as you know like a bargaining chip if you like to try and get a deal over the line for maybe a defender or a midfielder then that would be probably a good deal for all parties all concerned i think we talked about it briefly about um, Dejan Lovren coming back and using Origi in that. That's probably obviously not going to happen, but you know it could be something like that where they use someone who is not getting much first team action. I mean, Origi obviously didn't get on the pitch last night, but no one else off the bench did in fairness to that. But you know he's just not getting the game time, and well, I think we've mentioned it before. It, it all boils down to what he wants out of his career. Does he want to you know, quite happily sit on the bench at Liverpool, you know, picking up medals, you know? playing like 10 games a year, hardly starting, but he's quite happy to do that. But if he wants to you know, go somewhere in his career and be the main man, then you know that's obviously a decision for him. Um, could I see him leaving in January? Possibly, but as with anything, it has to be the right price. And you know, Liverpool value every single one of their players very, very highly. And it all comes down to whether any other club um, feels the same. Well, one thing they could do, one thing to monitor is City are quite good at this. They'll sell their loan players early. So, Gruich and Wilson might be on the table where you say to Porto, hey, look, the price in the summer was 20 million quid. We worked out a short-term loan deal. The price next summer was 25 million, but we could do it today for 17.5, 18. Mm -hmm. And you've raised money with guys already off the book. City do this all the time where they'll loan a guy for a season, then they'll meet in January and they'll sell him early before the yeah. summer. Because the team's like, we've got it, we've tried it, we like him, let's get it done. Yeah. So I think I think there's a possibility where they could say with Harry Wilson and Marco Gruwich, like let's try and raise 25 million quid by selling the pair of them early if we can. I think we could see something like that. Perhaps, yeah. Yeah, absolutely good shout. Um, okay, that's been the Liverpool.com podcast. Thank you very much for tuning in throughout the year. Um, we've really enjoyed doing it. We will be back in 2021. Um, here's to hoping you have a lovely Christmas considering everything that's happening. And here's hoping that it's once again Liverpool, Liverpool top of the league on Christmas Day. We'll see you later. You've been listening to the Blood Red Podcast from the Liverpool Echo.